Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. How are you doing, Luke? I'm doing good. It has been another busy week in politics. We're going to take a little bit of a detour outside of the state to do Obamacare repeal this week, um, but we've got two other important topics in the state, uh, so we're going to dive right into it. For our first topic this week, we're going to talk about a bill from Senator Schaefer. Uh, this is a Senate bill that establishes these things called PrizeLink savings accounts, um, and they are a interesting tool that will allow low-income people to establish savings. So we'll talk about what they're for, but also talk about how they might be related to the lottery and how it funds education, pre-K, and in college in Georgia. For our second topic this week, we're going to tackle the American Health Care Act. This is the Republican proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, it was scored by the CBO today on the day that we're recording on Monday, and it packs a lot of policy changes um, you know, into this bill. It's sort of been a long time coming, uh, but we're going to talk just a little bit about the policy stuff, and then we're going to dig deep into the politics of it, because the politics of this stuff is just completely insane. Um, and then for our third topic this week, we're going to talk about the redistricting bill that came out of the House on Crossover Day. This was a pretty hastily con- convened bill um, that's going to affect some of the state house districts. In it's in the metro Atlanta area, right, Luke? Yes, yeah, uh, lying so Cobb County and that area, but it affects uh, a lot of districts. Yeah, so we're going to talk about those districts, what the pol- politics of it are, what the impacts of that's going to be. Uh, But first, we'll start as we always do with our news of the week. So, Luke, what did you see in the news this week? I mean, this week, I've just been really befuddled by the Trump administration, which is not really a surprising thing, but it's just a recurring thing. Like, the wiretap story. What is going on there? I don't understand. For those of you who are not aware, the 45th president of the United States... Donald J. Trump accused the 44th president of the United States, Barack Obama, of wiretapping him. And there's been like some back and forth about like what, you know, what he meant by wiretap, but pretty much everyone, I think, knows the way wiretap is. And there's pretty much only one definition of what a wiretap is. So it's just an insane story to me because like accusing a former president of doing that is really, really huge. And just like some of the responses to that have been really ridiculous. Like I, I, you know, I, I, there's so many Republicans that have said this that I'm not even going to call out a specific one, but like there's several people that have said that like, well, if Obama did wiretap Trump, it would be a really big deal. (laughs) And it's like, yes, that would be a really big deal. But if Godzilla attacked New York, that would also be a really big deal that has about, you know, as much similar evidence. And so this is just a story that I really don't understand, especially because there's so many real accusations with some real evidence behind them of Trump doing things that, you know, quite possibly should have gotten him wiretapped. And this just highlights those things. So, you know, if you're if you're one of the people that have the theory that Trump is a Machiavellian genius, then maybe this is a cover so that when the Republicans are investigating the Russia stuff, they can be like, well, we're looking into the wiretap stuff, too. And, you know, maybe we'll find something there as, as we're looking into, you know, the fact that Donald Trump is probably a Russian spy. But, you know, and so that's just kind of how I feel like that story is going to progress. So that's sort of been the big thing in the news that I just like, see him like what what is happening and 
uh yeah it's just it's very very interesting what about you cal what'd you see in the news i saw uh the emerging fight between governor deal and richard woods he's the state school superintendent well i guess um, state so school superintendent a- doesn't like the governor and they're fighting yeah i know that a never rare happens thing, a rare thing um so we've talked a lot about school turnaround plans on this show this session um and apparently governor deal sent a letter to richard woods um, accusing him of, or, you know, charging him with that the number of chronically failing schools has gone up on his watch and asked him, asked Richard Woods what he had done to reverse the downward spiral of failure. Um, so they are currently sparring over whether or not the chief turnaround officer, um, who's going to be you know, a newly created position in this bill, whether or not that person should report to Governor Deal directly or to the state school superintendent. And, these things always sort of feel like they turn into a turf war between the state super and the governor. Um, and if you know anybody remembers, John Barge was the last state school superintendent before Richard Woods, and he actually stepped down to primary Governor Deal on Governor Deal's reelect in 2014. Um, so that whole thing we were talking about that we've been talking about for a long time about collaboration at the state level and with the locals and with all the different people involved – uh, that doesn't seem to be going all that well right now. No. Uh, with that, we'll jump right into our first topic this week. Um, so the I saw on Crossover Day, I saw a bill that caught my eye. It was Senate Bill 134 from Senator Schaefer. And this bill authorizes the creation at the state level of these things called prize link savings accounts. And basically what these things are is they're savings devices at either banks or credit unions that incentivize people to save by basically allowing you to kind of play the lottery with your savings. Um, So if you deposit money into a savings account that is organized in one of these uh, PLSAs, you can receive uh, raffle tickets basically for every amount of money that you donate. So in Michigan, where some of these are run, you get a raffle ticket for every $25 that you save. And then once every month or once every six months, or it kind of varies by different um, styles and how these are run. There are drawings where people can win maybe 50 bucks, maybe a hundred bucks, maybe $10,000. And they would get that money. They get to put it in their savings account and they'd get sort of the thrill of gambling and playing the lottery, but it's a lottery that you can't lose uh, because you you know, you basically always have the amount that you save. And if you're a winner, you're just adding to that amount as opposed to when you play the lottery. Um, that is some, that is a situation where you can gamble your money away. Um, that bill was passed out of the Senate before crossover day. It passed with big bipartisan majorities, 48 to two. Usually we wouldn't talk about a bill that was so unanimous like that. Uh, but this one I think is an interesting consideration for how it helps low income people save. Um, These are things that are popular in other states as of June of last year, basically before this year's legislative session, 20 states allow for some form of a prize link savings account. And this includes some of our regional neighbors like Louisiana, Arkansas, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. Um, And basically these have kind of come into being in recent years. They're something that was popular in other countries that helped low income people save, but it was something that hadn't really caught on here um, these first started to really get studied in 2007, and they kind of start in a in a true American fashion with a survey outside of a Walmart. Um, but these researchers went 
to Walmart to survey people in Indiana and see if they would be interested in some sort of a savings account like this. And the key here is that the people that were interested were people who are lower income, people who don't currently have savings, and uh, people who are interested in gambling. Um, and this is important because people who are lower income, who are you know struggling on hard times, they tend to not have savings accounts. And part of what happens is when you have something like a broken down car or a incident with your health or something like that, it can bankrupt you because you don't typically have savings. You don't have something to fall back on. And that's something that's really been a problem that policymakers have kind of struggled to solve through incentives. Um, but researchers looked at these prize link savings accounts in Latin America and South Africa and saw that it really brought unbanked people into the banking system and it encouraged people who don't necessarily have a lot of means to try to find a way to save. Um, so this is an interesting idea. The other thing that I think we wanted to dig into with this, because it's 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 not a it's not a complete game changer for low income people, but it is sort of something on the margins that would help them save. The thing that I think is sort of under discussed about this is what the impact on the Georgia lottery would be. Um, if you follow Georgia policy, or you happen to have gone uh, graduated from a Georgia college in any recent years, you would know that the Georgia lottery funds scholarships for college students. It also provides funding to run the Georgia pre K program, um, and so this policy is in, is worth considering as it relates to the Hope Scholarship, because the idea is that people might spend, especially low-income people, might spend less on gambling at the lottery and more on gambling in their savings account in a lottery that they can't lose. Um, but how do you think that you know illustrates who is actually funding the lottery that ultimately goes to fund college scholarships? Well, I mean, my first thought is <laughs> the the recurring theme on this show that's kind of insane that we fund the Hope Scholarship through lottery funds pretty much only. Um, but I think I think with these accounts, it's tricky because you know, for me, I would like to encourage people not to gamble at all, and you know, you should put your money in a savings account where you're going to get interest. I understand that that's really boring, and that I'm a very boring person because that's how I live my life, but. Um, I think these accounts really do illustrate and do work in a good direction to try to help encourage people to save. And I think that's a really important thing because, you know, there's far too many people that do live paycheck to paycheck that, you know, uh, play the lottery. And so if this is a way to help alleviate that problem some, I think it's probably a good thing. But... I also am concerned by how quickly it's kind of moving through the process and that like you, you know like we were discussing that the hope scholarship is really completely dependent on lottery funds. If lottery funds significantly change in the wrong direction, that really puts the hope scholarship at risk. And so what I was going to ask you and you know this might not exist, has there been any research into how prized link saving accounts affect lotteries in states that have lotteries? Yeah, this research doesn't really come from the U.S. These programs are still relatively young, but outside of the U.S., uh, particularly in a program in South Africa, um, this program was shown to actually move people's spending from a lottery to their prize link savings account. 
Uh, this is particularly true for low income people who, you know, part of what draws low income people to the lottery, this was something that I found in some of the research that's kind of troubling is they actually think that the lottery is their best bet to come up with some sort of sustainable savings that they don't actually believe if they're making, you know, if they're not making a lot of money or their income fluctuates because they're like a part-time worker and their schedule changes, they don't actually believe that they have the ability to save a lot of money on their own. So that's why they play the lottery to try to gain a savings by getting lucky in the lottery. Um, so this does, at least in South Africa, it was shown in some studies that it did move people's spending from the lottery to their PrizeLink savings account. Are there any hard um, numbers on that? I'm not sure how it would compare because it's the lottery, I think, is different. Right. I mean, it, the thing worth noting is that it does change some of the behavior. I mean, I think the thing that we would want to know if we were trying to like design some sort of like cost impact on the lottery here would be what are the demographics of lottery players. Um, and unfortunately, the data that we do have on that is relatively old. There was a study done back in 2000 that the University of Georgia did, and it did kind of outline who was more likely to play the lottery. It found that respondents to the survey that they did, um, if respondents had higher education levels, they were the least likely to have played the lottery recently. Uh, black players are more than are three times more likely to be what's known as active players, which is like playing multiple times a week. Um, and an individual without a high school degree or a GED was four times more active to be a lottery player, four times more likely to be an active lottery player. So the the demographics, at least in 2000, did lean towards lower income people. Um, but I think it is difficult to sort of say if you have these accounts what fiscal impact is there going to be on the lottery? Because they tend to play lower dollar games. They tend to do scratch-offs, uh, people with lower incomes do, or they tend to do lower values of the the pick'em, the number pick'em games. Um, so that is something that has kind of like escaped notice in this whole process is what the impact would be on the lottery. Um, but I do think that if you are worried about the lottery losing money from low-income people moving their spending – the solution doesn't need to be let's kill the prize link savings account so that these people continue to gamble. I think the state needs to find other ways to fund higher ed and pre-K if this is going to put a revenue hit on the lottery. Yeah, that's pretty much where I come at it from. I mean, you know, obviously I could be selfish and be like, oh, I want all that hope money for, you know, me and my college, you know, aged friends. But at the end of the day, it's not a very fair way to fund higher egg, especially because a lot of the people that use the lottery are not the same people that will use hope funds. So yeah, at the end of the day, if we can find a better way to fund the hope scholarship and to fund pre-K, I think this is probably really good policy, um, to encourage people to save, which is really one of the most important things you can do to get more, you know, fiscally stable is have a little bit of a rainy day fund. So uh, all in all, uh, if this is encouraging people that would put the money into lottery tickets or some other form of gambling to do uh, these savings accounts, I think it's it's a win at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that, I mean, this point is worth dwelling on for a minute. It It really is kind of crazy how very rarely we talk about the fact that the lottery tends to be played by lower income people. And then that money gets diverted to a scholarship program 
and the demographics of people who go to college, those people tend to be more well-off anyways, partially by the, the kinds of schools that they go to. The, the better schools tend to be in more higher-income communities. Because the Hope Scholarship doesn't have any kind of income cap on it, um, you can have somebody who comes from a family that makes six figures in a year qualify for the Hope Scholarship. And the money that goes into funding that Hope Scholarship is largely collected from poor people. It's like, I don't, it, that's something that's bothered me for quite some time. And it's something that just sort of completely always escapes notice about how we fund higher education in Georgia. And I, I don't know why, I mean, I can understand. I mean, it's, it would well, be I think I think what's, what's tough about it, and I'm not saying that this is right, but I think it does make the argument tough is that the lottery is 100% a choice. You know, like, no one is forcing people to play the lottery. And so, sure, with the lottery set up, the demographics show that it's, you know, predominantly poor people to that, that play the lottery, but it's not like the government is forcing them to play the lottery. No, I just think that the lottery understands who its most active customers are, I mean, there was another study that showed that lottery outlets are often clustered in neighborhoods with large numbers of minorities, and these are the people who are at the greatest risk of developing a gambling addiction. And so it's like putting liquor stores in neighborhoods where you know alcoholics live. You know that there's going to be a a regular business there, uh, but sort of the morals of doing that, and then, then you know maybe taxing that liquor to fund something that other more wealthy people could already afford anyways, or like a yacht tax credit. <laughs> I know. Um, and I, it just like, it's important to find ways to fund higher ed. Uh, I don't know that this is the right one, or at least I don't know that it's something that we ought to be thinking more about more often than we do now. Yeah. I think, I think the key is that, you know, we need to examine the morals of it occasionally uh, and unfortunately, I don't think you and I are going to solve that problem here today, but it is important to think about that, you know, uh, our higher ed system is, is funded by people that don't get to benefit from that system. And that sucks. Well, let's move on to another failed attempt at problem solving. And that is Hooray. the American Healthcare Act, the Republican proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, so we're going to do this conversation in two parts. The first part, I'm just going to kind of blow through what the policy does to just kind of set the table. We're going to um, talk more about the policy specifically in the future because it is possible, and I think it's actually pretty likely, based on the politics that we're going to talk about, that this policy changes pretty significantly. Um, so we're just going to talk a little bit about what the law does. We're going to talk about the score that it got today from the Congressional Budget Office, and then what we're going to dig in deep to is the politics of this because the politics are just like crazy on this. Um, but just briefly, so the American Healthcare Act is the proposal in the House of Representatives right now that would repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Um, so the ACA, you'll remember it as Obamacare. It's a law that uh, provided health insurance coverage to 11 and a half million people through the private market, through the individual market. These are the health insurance exchanges or healthcare.gov that you've probably heard about. Um, and then it also, it also provided coverage to 11.1 1 
million newly eligible people through an expansion of Medicaid, which is the health insurance program for low-income people. And while we often talk about Obamacare as if it is the entire healthcare system, it's actually a relatively small group of people that are impacted by this law because most people get health insurance through either their employer or through Medicare, the healthcare system for the elderly. Um, in Georgia, 46% of people in Georgia get their healthcare through their employer. Uh, 13 get their healthcare through Medicare. So this is only dealing with maybe a quarter of the health insurance market. It's not insignificant, uh, but it's always worth remembering that when you talk about Obamacare in this repeal effort. So what does the American Health Care Act do? Well, it's worth looking at this in a couple of different buckets. The first important thing is to talk about tax credits. So the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, provides tax credits that adjust by income between 100% and 400% of the poverty line. Um, and these are meant to help people afford health insurance coverage in the individual market on healthcare.gov. The American Health Care Act, the Republican proposal, it keeps them, but it makes them less effective in helping low-income people afford coverage. It does this by making them flat by income. So if you are very low income, you don't get additional, uh, you don't get additional assistance to buy health insurance. They're flat by income all the way up to people earning $75,000 a year. And then they phase out, but you can actually get a little bit of a tax credit if you're making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, all the way up to 115. Um, there was a great chart that came out from center on budget and policy priorities that showed the change in the value of the tax credits by state. It's worth it to note that like Alaska gets completely hammered in this scenario because Alaska is a relatively high cost state to buy health insurance in. And this proposal from the Republicans makes the value of the tax credits that help you buy insurance much less generous if you live in a place where health insurance is very expensive. So states like Alaska, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Alabama, Nebraska, they all get completely hammered on the value of the tax credits that are lost. Georgia's kind of in the middle of the pack. The value, the average value of a tax credit under the health care plan presented by the Republicans is going to decrease by $1,875 per year. And we'll link to that chart in the show notes. Uh, so what else does it do to the individual market? Um, it gets rid of the individual mandate. This is the thing that conservatives have you know, really argued against since the Affordable Care Act was passed seven years ago. Um, it replaces this with something that is essentially a watered down version of the individual mandate. It's called the continuous coverage mandate where in the individual mandate, you have to pay a penalty in your taxes if you don't have health insurance. On continuous coverage, you have to pay a penalty when you re-enter the health insurance market if you have a gap between where you don't have health insurance. Um, this is an issue because it actually disincentivizes people who are young and healthy and might take the risk from avoiding health insurance. It actually disincentivizes them from getting back in the market until they really need to. And that's something that isn't really great for health insurance markets. Uh, some of the other things it does, it keeps some of the popular provisions of the Affordable Care Act. It allows dependents up to age 26 to stay on their parents' health insurance plans. It maintains prohibitions on annual and lifetime limits of coverage. It maintains some of the no-cost preventive services. And it maintains the list of 10 essential health benefits. Um, this is something that 
Republicans have attacked a lot, but it's something that they're not getting rid of just yet. Uh, the other bucket worth looking at this on is the Medicaid program. Um, so the Medicaid program was expanded under the Affordable Care Act. If you made up to 138% of the poverty line, you could get Medicaid coverage in your state. Um, this was mandated by the law, but it was made optional, made optional, made optional by a Supreme Court decision that upheld most of the law back in 2012. The federal government is paying for you know nearly all of this expansion after 2020. They're paying nine dollars for every one dollar a state contributes. Um, the American Health Care Act basically eliminates the Medicaid expansion, and it does this not directly, which is why you might have seen some different reporting on this. It does this by sort of letting the Medicaid expansion bleed to death, because if you are in the Medicaid expansion program after 2020, and then for whatever reason, you become not eligible, either you get a job and your income increases or the number of people in your family changes, um, or you have another health insurance option, you would move out of the Medicaid program. And what happens now is people kind of shift in and out. Um, and they're kind of free to go back and forth. There's a lot of churn in the market. The Republicans would make that more difficult in their proposal, and that would eventually lead to basically the end of the, the Medicaid expansion. Um, the, so the law today was scored by the Congressional Budget Office. This is basically the nonpartisan scorekeeper um, that you know, says basically what a bill costs. And when you're looking at health insurance, uh, it also shows um, who would maintain or lose health insurance coverage when you're looking at health care bills. Um, the CBO today estimated that 14 million people would lose coverage in 2018. These people would mostly come from the individual market. And then after that, the Medicaid cuts would set in and the loss of insurance would increase to 21 million by 2020 and 24 million by 2026. Um, the CBO also notes that the individual market would sort of remain stable, uh, which is something that sort of goes against Republican charges about the individual market right now, that it's falling apart. Um, CBO basically says either under current law or with this new Republican proposal, the market would be stable but very small. Um, and that's part of, you know, people losing access to health coverage because the subsidies are not enough to buy health insurance coverage. Um, and then the other big thing is that the Republican proposal is a huge cut to the Medicaid program. It's $800 billion or almost 25% of the program's funding over 10 years. Um, the last thing I would note on the policy side before we dig into the politics of this, this structure that the Republicans have adopted really hammers people who are older uh, and people who are lower income. So there was a tweet from Sarah Cliff when she was working through the CBO estimate today, and she noted um, that the estimate shows that a 64-year-old who earns $26,500 $26, in a year would have their premium increase. This is their one year or their premium across the year would increase by $12,900 under the Republican proposal, which to me, and I think this is a good way to jump into the politics, Luke, um, to me, this is just crazy that they have designed a healthcare proposal that is going to benefit uh, healthy young people who make 
sort of middle or middle higher income, uh, you know, young people who tend to lean towards being more democratic. And it's going to hammer older people who are lower income, who in a lot of cases, especially the people that live in rural areas, voted for Trump. So what do you think the Republicans are thinking about the politics of this whole proposal? What I mean, what the hell are they doing? Uh, I think what's happened is that they made a decision about eight years ago that if Barack Obama wants to make health care his big thing, then they're going to be against it. And they maintained that position while also maintaining the fact that they are a conservative party. And so in that you know, headspace that they were in, they could legitimately attack Obama and Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act for costing too much, for having too high premiums, for not covering things that people want covered and forcing you to pay for things you didn't want to get covered on, like, you know, prenatal care, you know, men having to pay, uh, pay for prenatal care and, you know, subsidized birth control and all this kind of mumbo-jumbo, and they could complain about those things and make people hate the law because of those things, because it didn't do enough to fix those things, and then not have to deal with consequences because they never thought they'd be in a position to actually repeal it, and now that they're in that position, they're still talking about how we need to change something because the current system is bagging all these areas... But now they're in a situation where they're like, oh yeah, we're Republicans and we're not willing to do any of the things that would fix the problems they've been complaining about. So they're in this headspace of extreme cognitive dissonance where they aren't willing to do the things that would fix the problems that they've been complaining about. And so they had a choice. They had three options, I think. Vague, very large options. Option one, do nothing, which would be pretty crazy to do. Option two, completely forget about being Republicans, which is something that I sort of expected Donald Trump to do, and to propose a plan that they could not pay for that would, you know, increase the role of government and help people. Uh, lower the cost of health insurance. Did not think that option would happen, and it doesn't seem like they picked that one. And then option three is present a plan that fits your ideology, but does absolutely nothing at all to make what people have been complaining about better and actually exacerbates those problems. Because, and this is, I think, critically important, is that this is going to be... The, one of the first major attempts in recent times for a government to take away benefits from people once they've already received them. Because, and I think this is really important too, is everyone, including myself, have given Nancy Pelosi grief about the infamous line of, we have to pass the bill to see what's in it. Now, if you actually know the context of that statement, what she was saying is that people would like the bill and understand what's in the bill once they started benefiting from the things in the bill. So, similarly, I think they are hoping they can get through the reverse of that, which is people aren't going to know what's in the bill until we pass it, and they can go up there, 
pass a law and say, we repeal Obamacare, and everybody cheer and clap and be happy, and then no one noticed that their premium spiked, no one noticed that they can't get insurance anymore, no one notices that they get charged a 30% surplus when they try to buy health insurance again. And that's just obviously not a politically viable strategy. So, at this point, what is a theory that is out there that is not that they are just completely insane? Because it's really hard for me to consider them being literally this crazy, where for eight years they have complained about Obamacare and said how unaffordable it is for people, and then they present a plan that actually makes those problems worse, and they think that's going to be politically viable. Yeah, I've been thinking about this really since I saw the first version of this proposal. Uh, Ezra Klein wrote up this argument in Vox, um, and it was kind of similar to how I was sort of thinking about this too, so we'll link to it in the show notes so that you can read the whole thing. But Ezra Klein makes the case, and I find this persuasive, that Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, the Republican leadership, they actually don't want to do the repeal of Obamacare. Part of the reason that they don't want to do it is because Obamacare is becoming more popular, particularly after Obama has left office and people are sort of perceiving that the program is under threat, but also because they have spent, as you noted, the last seven years when they've been campaigning against Obamacare talking about how premiums are too high and deductibles are too high and the plans aren't usable. They don't actually create the ability to access healthcare services because they're the way they're designed, they're too expensive to use. The problem is the conservative version of healthcare reform that they have advocated for and that health wonks talk about on the conservative side a lot are plans that rely on the consumer to be sort of the driver of their health care. And this requires them to actually do things with higher deductibles and things with health savings accounts that make you really feel every dollar that you're spending on health care. And the idea is that if you are feeling the money you're spending, um, and if it feels expensive to spend that money, then you will be, you'll ration your own health care services, basically. You'll try to be careful with it. Um, the feedback that they've gotten, particularly from Trump voters, but from a lot of voters who voted for a Republican in the White House this year, is that they actually hate those things and that it makes healthcare too stressful to use and to access. And so what they've done is they haven't introduced conservative health reform. And this is a proposal that's been opposed by a whole bunch of conservative groups, groups like Heritage Action and Freedom Works. Club for Growth, the Tea Party Patriots have all issued opposition to this bill. And so part of the theory is Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell have purposefully gotten behind a bill that they know will piss off every faction of the left and the right. And Donald and Trump will, has gotten behind the bill too. Don't forget that. He has, although it's he goes back and forth, so it's really hard to know kind of where he is. I think he to the extent that he listened to Tom Price in the last two or three hours, supports the bill. But any time that there's a whole bunch of bad press coverage about, about the bill, he is like tweeting at Fox and Friends and saying, well, those things you're complaining about, we're going to fix them in phase two or phase three. But the idea from at least Paul Ryan's perspective is put up a bill that pisses everybody off 
and then let it die in the legislative process and basically say over the period of the next month, well, we tried, it's the Democrats' fault, it's the Senate's fault because I can't get 60 votes for this bill in the Senate, um, but we're not going to waste time on something that we think is not a political winner, something that the Democrats are going to block us on. Let's just sweep this under the rag and move on to the rest of our agenda um, and just get this out of the way as soon as possible. Because they're stuck between the inability to actually pass their own version of healthcare reform, the truly conservative version, and their base who wants them to do that, Versus not having enough votes in the Senate to actually get done what they want to get done. Um, and so I think there is some, I think, it, it makes more sense what they've put out there. It makes more sense if you kind of believe that they don't want to do this at all. Um, if you actually believe that they want to do this, if this is the plan that they've been cooking up for the last seven years, their critique and everything that they've said just makes utterly no sense. Um, and so that's why I'm kind of leaning towards this theory that they don't actually want to do this. Paul Ryan just wants to cut tax rates for rich people. And he's trying to find a way to pay for that in this bill. That's part of the problem. But the faster they can get this off the table and get onto something where they either can find some Democratic support or they can push through with a more unified Republican caucus, um, they're going to move on to that as quickly as they can. Yeah, I think though that this this whole charade has shown quite clearly that they're not really all that organized because I mean just simple things like Rand Paul like having a bunch of cameras follow him as he like runs around the Capitol like trying to find the bill. Like that's just not very good to to let stuff like that happen even if it's a bill they're trying to purposely let fail because again one of the other things they're constantly criticizing the um, Obama administration about which was how quickly they passed Obamacare which it took them months so I have never understood that criticism but then they debated the thing for a whole year yeah and, and then you know they're trying to pass the bill and get a vote on it before the CBO score comes out you know it's just like I don't know What's going on with them mentally to to have them do this? Because, I mean, honestly, I think the absolute worst case scenario for them would be that they pass this thing and Trump signs it. Because and this is actually something that Trump probably agrees with me on because he even mentioned that it would be very smart for them to just not do anything and let Obamacare fail. And then they could look at it and say, Hey, look, Obamacare failed. We told you it was going to fail. And now it has, now it has. So let us do whatever we want. Um, you know, that's sort of what Trump said they should do. So really, I think if they pass this thing, it's the worst thing for them because everyone will blame them and properly. So for, uh, things going wrong, because here's the thing. Democrats did not do a great job of selling Obamacare, especially because a lot of people don't realize that Obamacare and the ACA and the Affordable Care Act are all the same thing. Like that is just like one sign of how un, how much of a poor job that the Democrats did in selling it. Oh, the how- best the best example of that is in Kentucky. They had their own version. So some states adopted their own version of the exchange, and so there were all these interviews at the this 
enrollment center for their Kentucky version of Obamacare. It was called Connect. And um, this person that was being interviewed said, you know, I really hate that Obamacare, but this Connect program is really great. And it was the same thing. It just had a different name. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a great example as well. But what I was getting to is at the end of the day, even if we dig, we being Democrats, dig a terrible job of selling Obamacare compared to selling the American Health Care Act where you go out there on the stage and you'd be like, this plan is a great plan because we're going to repeal Obamacare. And then, you know, someone's going to ask you and the question is like, is it going to make my premiums go down? And the crowd's cheers. And they're like, no, it's not going to do that. And then, you know, the crowd gets silent. It's like, is it going to cover more stuff? And then the crowd cheers. And then, no, it's not going to do that. You know, like, it's 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 not an easy thing to sell. Like, it's not going to work for them to go out and sell this bill where they can look at a crowd of their constituents and pretty much all of them will be like, I'm pro- this bill will probably make your life and make your insurance harder to keep in some way, shape, or form. And, I mean, honestly, to, to really just hit the one thing that makes the least amount of sense to me is I understand that they don't like the individual mandate. I understand the reasons why they don't. Um, But to put in the 30% surcharge for people that go more than two months without health insurance... Uh, I, you know, sure, this is anecdotal, but I can tell you for sure, 100%, no questions asked, that will be a huge impediment to my parents to ever get insurance again. If that policy exists, they probably won't have insurance until they get on Medicare. Um, because that is a huge hurdle for people. And, you know, people talk about Obamacare going into a death spiral. I don't see how the American Healthcare Act doesn't go into a death spiral almost immediately because no one will will come on to this thing because it will cost so much to get health your initial health care coverage because of that surcharge. Who would ever get on that and pay that insane fine for not having health insurance for, you know, two months? Because, I mean, that's going to catch a bunch of people who are just, like, switching jobs. Like, there's a ton of reasons why you might not have health insurance for two months. So I, I just, that, that particular thing makes no sense whatsoever to me. Um, there's other parts of it, like within the conservative worldview, I understand vaguely why they would want to do it, but that particular policy is nuts to me. I don't even know that they, I mean, this, this isn't a, a conservative health reform. And, and part of the thing that, that I think they have a real problem on is they don't have Trump as a leader on this issue. Trump has got in front of the cameras to say, oh, we have this great idea and we're going to fix health care and it's going to be great and it's going to be magnificent and we're going to cover everybody and your premiums are going to go down and it's going to be cheaper and it's just going to be better. The longer that he just sort of gets up there and repeats that point of we're just going to do something great and you'll see it eventually, I think he's going to lose credibility on actually being a leader on that issue for the Republicans. And that, when you don't have the president as a leader of a legislative initiative... Especially one this big. Yeah, I mean, especially one like healthcare. I mean, if it's naming a bridge, you don't need the president behind it. (laughs) But if it's reforming the healthcare, 
you know, industry, which, and this is something I think, I think we're a little bit biased because we are all like, Obama dig Obamacare. So people fix healthcare all the time. Like, no, like basically since FDR, people have been trying to reform healthcare in a significant way. And besides Lyndon Johnson doing Megacag and Megacag, I, I don't, in Medicare, I don't know what else is there. Like, I think that, that's pretty that's much really it. it. That's that pretty is, much it. I mean, so, like, from Obama FDR and are the only ones. to now, there's only been one other time that we significantly changed healthcare in this country. So, like, I don't think it's really that likely that we're going to change it again in a major way, which this bill obviously would be. Well, and that effort from Obama required Obama. everything. It required <laughs> I mean, everything. We, but we it... lost almost everything over trying to do it. But even just getting it done in the process required him to stare into something that was unpopular. I mean, it was in the middle of that push in 2009 that all those town halls happened and the Tea Party was kind of born. And Rahm Emanuel, I remember reading about this, Rahm wanted Obama to drop the health care push and to focus on jobs and the economy. And it was the effort was becoming unpopular and there was infighting among the Democrats and Obama took the lead on it and basically dragged, along with Nancy Pelosi and uh, Harry Reid, dragged Democrats through the process to to make them do this. And the other piece of this is that they had a very visible goal that they wanted to achieve. And it's not clear that the Republicans or Trump are on the same page about some goal that they want to achieve, except for being able to nominally say we repealed Obamacare. They don't, I mean, I, they're I think, not on I think the same that page is all place. they care about. And they, for, I think, I think what, what the problem is back to my rally analogy is that like, they've been going out and they've been saying, we're going to repeal Obamacare. And then the whole crowd goes, Rawr! that they like forget that they actually want them to repeal Obamacare because it costs too much. And because they don't like how it covers them and they want more help, not less. And that people sincerely do not understand that when a Republican says they're going to repeal Obamacare, what they should be hearing is we are going to take away benefits that you currently enjoy. Uh, Yeah, it's hard to see what the the path forward is. Um, So... We'll wrap that discussion there. We're going to get into the policy and particularly kind of how it'll affect Georgia in a future episode. But we just wanted to talk about the politics from a national perspective because this is the first big legislative and political test for the Trump administration and why in the world he allowed him and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to to put health care at the top of the agenda. I will never understand. And it's going to drag them through the mud for their first Two well, months in office. I, I think because uh, this is, you know, Trump has been historically extremely unpredictable. I think we should make predictions because why not embarrass ourselves? So, do we actually think that Trump's going to stick with this bill until it's dead, or is he going to is he going to bail? No, he, I think he'll turn on it eventually. Um, I think that's part of what, if you believe Ezra Klein's theory, that's sort of part of what. He what Paul Ryan needs to count on because Paul Ryan's been the champion and so have two chairs of committees in the House. They've sort of been the ones that are willing to stand up and, and fight for this thing. Um, 
if they run into resistance from Trump, I think that's good enough to kill it. Um, so I think at some point Trump is going to turn on this thing and, and that's how it dies. Uh, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? I, I think that's probably it that like eventually they're just not going to have the votes for it and they'll use Trump to beat it up and kill it in some way. Uh, cause I mean, the thing is, is like Trump doesn't really believe anything about any policy besides the wall and besides his immigration policies. So I think at the end of the day, Trump's just going to be like, well, they didn't want to do what I wanted to do. So ah, screw them, build the wall. <laughs> and, you know, just go back to that. And with that, I think we'll move on to our third topic this week. So Luke, what are we talking about for topic number three? Surprise guys. I'm introducing a topic. Um, so I wanted to talk about HB 515, which is a redistricting bill. Um, so just to kind of highlight this, we've talked about this before, but traditionally what states do is they wait for a census and the census comes out every 10 years. And after we get the census, you know, we figure out where populations moved. We figure out where, uh, what states have gotten more congressional districts, what states have lost congressional districts, all that kind of thing. And we use all that data to draw new districts. Um, and, for a long time, people really didn't care about this in American history. They just, like, some people wouldn't even do it. Other states would do it, like, every, you know, 50 years or something. But throughout time, it's become more and more regulated. And, you know, basically since the 60s, we have a you know, expectation that redistricting will happen every 10 years. It'll be based on population. You have to take in racial considerations and you can't go too far in pushing uh down minority populations all that kind of stuff so that's a huge topic and while i'd love to talk about it we'd be here for another like five hours so we're going to kind of focus specifically on this piece of legislation what it means in georgia and kind of like the larger repercussions following it so what this bill does is it takes several house districts but most notably it takes house district 40 and house district 111 and takes some significant chunks out of it and puts them into different districts while also grabbing other parts of it and throwing it into another district and what they're primarily doing here and if you look at a map it's it's pretty hard to not see this, especially the map that um, has been circulating around the state. Georgia Poll has it, a couple other places I um, have it as well, where it shows the areas that they're taking out of the districts and the district and, and the areas that they're putting into the district. And it's pretty clear what they're doing. And that is they are removing as many Democrats as they possibly can from their district and throwing them into another Democratic district, and they're grabbing as much Republicans as they can to add to their district to make up for the population change that they're doing. And if you also look at it, it's quite clear that not only are these people Democrats, they're also primarily African Americans. And so that gets really tricky, because what a lot of court cases that have come out recently have been in violation of the Miller versus Johnson case, which 
stated, you know, the Supreme Court case that stated that you could not use race as a predominant factor when you're redistricting. So both of these changes, you could make an argument that Democrats are the people that they're targeting, but in a large, large way, it's quite clear they're also targeting African Americans. And it gets complicated because a lot of times it's it's almost the same thing and that makes it really hard to know which way it's going so the there's been a lot of court cases that have really held this to a stricter standard lately there's the alabama black caucus that uh fought a redistricting plan that alabama did and that plan was found to have pretty significant racial bias and that seemed to be the main factor that they were employing to make these districts uh there was the north carolina versus covington case and the bethune hill i think that's the right pronunciation versus virginia case um both of these cases are still ongoing but all three of them sort of have a very similar theme which was that primarily a lot of african americans were moved around into different districts in a way that could seem racially motivated, but the argument that the um, people drawing the maps would make always is that, oh no, we're not moving the African Americans, we're moving the Democrats. But it would become quite clear once they look at how they did this moving around that it was not them moving Democrats, it was them moving African Americans. Now... What's interesting about this specific bill is that that's not the argument that they're making, and it's not the reason why they're saying they're doing this. Um, Some of the reasons I heard, because I was actually in the House chamber when they were debating this, they mentioned the fact that um, this would be moving one district so that the representative could represent his hometown. They mentioned that it was efforts to, you know quote-unquote, keep communities of interest together. Uh, Rumor I heard was, and so I'm saying it very specifically rumor because I've not been able to verify this, so if someone else can, is that this was uh, one of the other changes because I think there's a total of 11 districts that are being changed. It's just those two that are being changed most significantly that uh, Jan Jones, the Speaker Pro Tem, is building a new house and they want to put that new house into her district. Like, they're doing a bunch of stuff like that. So, it's very kind of them. Yeah, it's very nice of them to do that. Um, so, this is not okay, is, is the reason why I wanted to talk about this. Kyle will have his own thoughts and feelings, but redistricting is something that's, like, really important to me because... At the end of the day, I think this is like critical to our democracy that we have to have a system where people feel like the folks representing them actually represent them. Whereas in this situation, at the most basic basic analysis, what you're doing when if they pass this bill and the governor signs it and it goes into effect. So what effect is going to happen is that a bunch of people that vote for Rich Golick and a bunch of people that vote for Brian Strickland or voting against them will not be represented by the person that they voted for and they will be represented by someone else effectively. And I don't think that that is the right way to run a democracy that if you piss off a bunch of voters because you're not voting in a way that you 
that they want you to, that you just simply up and move your district and get a whole bunch of new voters who don't know who you are and just keep doing that until you're in a district that's like 80% Republican. And I, I don't, don't think this is a good way to run your democracy. And at the end of the day, it just confuses people. If you're used to Rich Golick being your your representative, and now they up and move the lines, and now you have a completely different representative, I mean, that just confuses a lot of people, makes everything a lot harder. And the fact that this is something that's being accepted in this state and around the country is just ridiculous to me because... Voters should shoot their representatives, not the other way around. And we need a system that allows that and doesn't allow shenanigans like this because that's all it is. It's it's a blatant attempt to rig the system. And so I'm just very frustrated that this is not gogging a bigger, you know, uh, spotlight than it has. And ultimately, I suspect that this will be challenged in court and depending on how those other cases go, if the court rules against those plans, they almost certainly will rule against this one because this one is just as blatant as those other ones. So for once, I got to rant. So Kyle, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. I'm curious about the timing of this from a legislative perspective. I mean, it seems like oh and one brief note because i got so fired up i forgot this both rich golick and brian strickland were in like extremely close races uh the past two election cycles um so that is not irrelevant to this conversation yeah i mean it i don't i mean do you think that this has been un undercovered or or they're gonna be able to sneak this by i mean i don't think i would have paid any attention to some redistricting thing that was pre-filed before the legislative session and it moved some people around and, and maybe it moved well, okay, okay, people okay, in okay. more districts. There's no legitimate reason to move the lines right now. That's that's the, the thing that is that should be frustrating to people and to be having people pissed off about this because there's no reason to do it. Uh, so they don't ever move lines? It's mid. not that they don't ever do it. It's that there's no reason to do it other than to support their political ambitions. Yeah, but like, I mean, there's that's no what legitimate happens every reason why you lines. should do that. But that's what happens when they move the lines after the census, too. But But there's legitimate reason to do it because there's rules that the districts have to be close to population parity. Like, you have to get it in below 5%. So there's a legitimate government purpose for doing the redistricting after the census. There's no reason that I can think of that you should do this right now unless there is some significant change to the you know makeup of the the area. Like if a new city got created, maybe you need to do it, but even then that's a bit of a stretch. And the problem is is that's not when they do it. They don't they 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 literally only do this to help their political, you know, aspirations. Like, that's the only reason that they're doing it, and they don't have a legitimate reason beyond that. I mean, is is it really critical to this state that we allow a representative to represent his hometown? Why didn't he run in a district that had his hometown in it? You know, like, if that's where he wanted to represent. Why is that not something that can wait for the next census? Well, I think that this is just another example of 
this is something that politicians on both sides of the aisle can get away with. And they don't get held to account for this when they're up for reelection. And so if this is something that you care about, then you need to vote out whoever, you know, participated in in this little charade. But here's the Um, problem. Because it is. Well, it's just like that most people don't pay attention to it. And well, so because I, that of is that, the problem. Yeah, well, well, that's what I'm saying is that like the people paying attention to it are the very people that just got moved out of Brian Strickland's district and just got moved out of Rich Golick's district, so they're not going to be able to vote against it. Yeah, I just think that. I mean, but you can vote against the new rep, whoever you're new, because this well, is the new rep's a Democrat that has nothing right? to do with it. Oh, who's well. against the plan? So that's the problem: is that they're packing a Democrat district nearby with all the African-Americans in the area. Well, there is another solution to this, right? I mean, there is the proposal about the redistricting commission. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's several states that have pushed this through referendum. Um, Georgia, unfortunately, doesn't have that mechanism, so it's not an option for us. But there so is a is bill... It, what was that? I said, so what is it, though? What is this that well, that's other what states I was getting have to. considered? So there, there, is a, there is a bill that would create a nonpartisan redistricting commission. Um, it's it's not the plan I would put forth, but it is a significant improvement from our current status quo. Uh, basically, what it would do is it would take the drawing of the lines out of the hands of the legislature and it would put it in an independent body that would draw it and then the legislature would approve of it. Um, so that would definitely be an improvement on on the current way we do things. But so is that bill going to go anywhere this session? No, it's it's not going to go anywhere. Wait, did it die? Did it even cross over from crossover day? No. Okay. Well, then <laughs> that's the other. I mean, that's the other way in which voters can hold their own representatives accountable is to say. And this has to be a bipartisan thing. I mean, this has to be something that when Democrats do it, we have to call them out on it, too. Um, This has to be a behavior that is unacceptable in politics. And if you don't vote people out for their failure to pull politics out of the redistricting process, politicians are just going to act in their own interests to protect their own turf. And Um, so I don't it's not surprising to me at all. Um yeah, it's not surprising to me either. I'm happy, though, that there's been a lot more attention on this issue. I know, like, recently people asked if Arnold Schwarzenegger was planning on running for Senate in California, and he actually said that he wasn't, but he planned on being very active in promoting nonpartisan redistricting reform, which is something they actually did in California, and I think has had some pretty significant success there. Um, this is also one of the big pushes that former President Barack Obama and Eric Holger are working on uh they are they also have started an organization that's pretty much sole focus is to elect democratic governors and try to flip some state legislatures to enact nonpartisan redistricting reform so this is something i think that will actually be a much larger conversation than it has been in the 2018 midterms i hope i hope it does because it's not this is not the fire in your kitchen. This is the cancer that kills you slowly over time because uh, I don't think anyone thinks the hyperpolarization that we've been experiencing is a positive thing for the country. And while it's this is not the sole cause, no way, shape, or form is it the sole cause, but it is definitely exacerbating 
uh, the political divisions that we have. And so allowing this to continue is not going to be a viable strategy for democracy in the long term. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I'm disheartened by these things all the time, but I, I've become fairly cynical about politicians using their using when they have the leeway to do something to protect their own interests, they're going to do that. And, uh, people who care about government have to do the hard work of reforming systems to make that harder to do if it's something they don't want people to do. Uh, but with that, I think we'll wrap it there and we'll move on to EndNotes. Uh, so Luke, what is your EndNote for the week? Uh, we need some of that there reform, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think my EndNote is, um, session has been, somewhat sleepy this is something i've complained about earlier uh, i heard georgia political rewind also talked about this um but sort of in you know the past week or week two weeks it was a lot more interesting there was more controversial bills like hb uh 515 so i'm kind of just curious how session's gonna wrap up you know we're getting we're getting to the the last couple weeks and uh it's been you know mostly okay and there's only you know riffer really hadn't reared its head in the way that some people thought it might um you know we have this redistricting bill we have campus carry uh back again we have the campus sexual assault bill that we talked about um up and so i'm just kind of curious how how these bills will finish out yeah yeah i'm looking forward to that also and it's going to come here quicker than we know it um, so just to wrap up my end note for the week, I read a really interesting article that we'll link to in the show notes that talks about what we know about research about governors. Um, governors and sort of state level politics is kind of understudied as it compares to national politics, to the Congress, to the president. There's been endless books and research studies and all of that on the national level. But we are in a time, particularly in this relatively conservative area of era of governance where more and more authority is sort of being devolved to the states. And I don't think we know quite enough about the role of governors and state legislatures and how they attack policy problems and get things done. So I found this article to be really interesting. Um, it talks about, it basically gives kind of a broad overview of what we know about governors from the research. Um, but it also looks at things that we don't know and things that we should consider more. Uh, for instance, one of the things that's relatively unique for a governor is they interact with the other 49 governors through the National Governors Association. And then there's different governors associations for the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, and we don't really pay very much attention to how governors interact in those roles. And that's something that we should pay more attention to what those organizations of governors are doing uh, the other thing is the it's really easy to like look at a state of the state address. It's something that happens publicly and it's kind of got the pomp and circumstance kind of like the State of the Union. Uh, but there isn't very much research on the governor's role of preparing and pushing through a budget through the legislative process. And I think we've talked a little bit about that before. But that's always like the single biggest thing a state does. And we don't have a very good understanding beyond just the formal powers and sort of the formal processes about how a governor influences the budget process and how that shapes the policy that a state makes. But the other thing that was really interesting about this, and this is how it concludes, is it says that we should look at governors the same way that we look at baseball players. 
So we should collect a bunch of data on them and sort of separate out data from the things that governors can control, things are, that are within their formal and informal powers, and the things that they can't control, things that are the purview of the legislature or the courts, or things that where they're boxed in by public opinion. And we should sort of come up with these ratings about governors, similar to a rating in baseball called wins above replacement, which is basically how much better a player or a governor is than just the average person that could be replacing them. Um, and this reminded me of something. I can't remember if I talked to you about this, Luke, but I remember a couple of years back, the AJC started their legislative navigator on their website. And it's this big compilation of all of the bills and who's sponsoring them. And um, it's basically the, a giant data dump that's like more accessible and easier to use than the one on the state legislature website. And I had floated this to somebody of, of creating a fantasy legislator game, like you'd play fantasy football and like getting your teams of legislators together and, and picking ones that would move bills across the finish line and using that as a way to sort of rate and understand how effective your legislator is. And this sort of seems to go in the direction of doing a little bit of that for governors too, trying to figure out by actually looking at the things that they're doing, figuring out how good they are at their job, as opposed to just sort of picking and choosing different issues to evaluate a governor's legacy. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting idea. Uh, I, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed the Legislative Navigator. I was actually looking at it um, right before you mentioned it. Uh, so that was kind of funny because um, I forgot where some of uh, the bills I was interested in were. So uh, it's it's a neat tool. Definitely look into it, and it'll be interesting to see if they can figure out a way to measure governors better. Well, if somebody knows math, is good at math, and is good at creating games, you should reach out to us and we can create a like a, a fantasy league of how to evaluate our, our politicians at the state level. Uh, but with that, I think we will wrap it up for the week and we will talk to you next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.